I'd like to begin by joining my colleagues, those of us who are your guests, in thanking the people who organize this conference. We're having a good time, and I'm looking forward to my tote bag. <laughs> the only problem is I brought a tote bag, so I'm going to have to put the tote bag in the tote bag so they'll let me take it on the airplane without charging extra money. <laughs> for which I will build the Howenstein Center. So I'll try to solve that. I'm going to talk about time. John Burke this morning started off talking about time, talking about the cycles that operate within administrations. I'm going to talk about time in a couple of senses. One, in the sense of long-term trends, and the other in the sense of breakpoints within the administration at which things changed. I'm going to talk a lot in general and not very much in specific because I only have 15 minutes. And uh, after all, the subject is the organization and management of the White House and its relations with the cabinet, right? Are we bored yet? Uh, I'm not going to give you all the inside scoop on whoever was a deputy press secretary, but try to set it in context. White Houses are not invented from scratch. The literature on the presidency used to almost assume that that was the case, that each White House, each administration was a projection of the psyche of the president and was uniquely somehow that president's creation. There's a lot of truth to that. White Houses do reflect presidents. We've been talking about that this morning. But also, White Houses are institutions. Administrations are institutions. The cabinet departments from one administration to another are pretty much the same and do pretty much the same things. Similarly, the organization of the White House and the executive office of the presidency are institutions. So we can talk about the Bush legacy in a couple of sense. First is the legacy you inherit. What came to Bush? What was the context historically in which he established his administration? What did he get from other people, including Bill Clinton, but also his father, Ronald Reagan, and others? And then there's the legacy you pass on. At the end, I'll try to make a few guesses about what that might be so that people can ask critical questions and make me look silly. Five trends, five of the many one could pick out that Bush inherited that influenced his work. First, centralization of power in the White House and the Office of Management and Budget particularly. Generally, over the past several decades, presidents have sought to pull responsibility for the development of and implementation or supervision of the implementation of public policy into the White House. You've just been hearing a story about that in the national security side. It exists in many areas of public policy. George W. Bush continued, for example, the National Economic Council, one of Bill Clinton's major efforts in the direction of bringing responsibility for policy making into the White House. He tried, he got partway there in the, in the area of intelligence. 
Second, politicization. This goes with centralization. It's a strategy that goes back to Richard Nixon, but was first really successfully implemented by Ronald Reagan. Attempting to control the discretion of the permanent bureaucracy or of the departments and agencies that you don't trust by populating them at the top and down through the ranks as much as possible with people who agree with your policies, agree with your philosophy. It's easier for a president who's relatively ideological. We all know what a Reaganite is. We're a little less sure what a George H.W. Bushite might have been. Uh, George W. Bush was able to pursue this strategy as well. Third, what uh, my colleague Karen Holt and I have called the standard model of the White House as an organization. We stole the term standard model from physics. It's an effort to seem important. Uh, <laughs> there has become a growing consensus in the Washington community that there's really one best way to organize the White House. There used to be a dialogue between Republicans and Democrats. Rep Democrats going back to FDR, but especially to Truman, liked White Houses that had very few levels of hierarchy and were populated with generalists and were relatively small and sort of bands of brothers kinds of operations. Republicans liked hierarchy and order and specialization, a kind of bureaucratic notion. It goes back to Eisenhower, whose experience, of course, was in the Army. The, the two battled it out over time, with uh, Jimmy Carter being the last president to resist at the level of refusing to appoint a White House chief of staff until he'd been president for two and a half years, at which point he did. Bill Clinton had a chief of staff from the beginning, not a very strong one, but 18 months later he got himself a strong one. Essentially what's happened here is the Republicans won the argument. The White House staff that Barack Obama establishes, if he's following the advice he's getting from everybody, from both parties, from John Burke and the White House Transition Project, he will have a strong chief of staff, and Rahm Emanuel is not going to be anything but that, and he will have a White House that looks a lot like George W. Bush's. It's going to look a lot like Richard Nixon's because he kind of laid down the template for modern White House organization. Now, that all sounds kind of military, like you're marching through Iraq. The idea of the modern White House organization is something called multiple advocacy. We heard about it this morning. The idea of having strict routines to govern decision-making is not to enhance the authority of the hierarchy, the guy on top, but rather to create a process whereby issues that might come to the president for decision are staffed out, are circulated around to all those in the administration who are entitled to know and to participate or might have something useful to say. That includes other people in the White House, it includes people in the EOP, it includes the cabinet. The idea is to get as many good ideas as possible gathered together to report dissents and to let the president have all the information he can possibly use to make decisions. Some presidents would really like, Gerald Ford was an example, really like to have people sit in his office and argue. Other presidents, Richard Nixon, Jimmy Carter, preferred it on paper. George W. Bush is sort of a hybrid of that, 
in that he doesn't really care for, too much for arguments, but he doesn't read a lot either. But that's, uh, which simply means you condense things for him and save him time. Bush inherited such an organization. Bush had as his vice president, one of Ford's former chiefs of staff, Dick Cheney, had as his secretary of defense, Ford's other former chief of staff, Don Rumsfeld, and as John said this morning, Andrew Card, his, his own chief of staff, had been a deputy chief of staff prior to that under uh, his dad. He knew how to do it. He had a lot of people around him who knew how to do it. Fourth trend, the permanent campaign. This is really interesting, and I could talk for a long time about it, so I won't. The, per, the idea here is that increasingly, especially in the media environment we live in now, presidents see governing as an extension of campaigning, as an extension of the same kinds of techniques of self-publicizing, of instant response, of polling and focus grouping, the same kinds of techniques that you use in a campaign. This goes all the way back to, there's a wonderful essay by uh, Jeffrey Toulis that goes back to Woodrow Wilson and Teddy Roosevelt talks about how the basis of legitimacy for presidents started to change in the early 20th century when presidents, instead of simply appealing to their constitutional role for legitimacy or alternatively to their own good character, began to ground their claim to public acceptance in the public's enthusiasm for them and their policies and the mandate they got in the campaign. The idea of the permanent campaign really simply evolves from that. No president can completely escape it. Uh, certainly not George W. Bush, who populated his White House with three top advisors who were called the Troika coming in, re reminiscent of Reagan's Troika. Reagan's Troika was a manager, James Baker, an issues guy, Ed Meese, and reporting to Baker, an image guy, Michael Deaver. Bush's Troika was a manager, Andy Card, a press person, press and communications, Karen Hughes, and a political strategist, Carl Rove. You can sense the difference. There's less policy, more campaign. Fifth, I don't even need to elaborate, a powerful vice president. That's, been a, that's actually been a trend since the Ford administration, since Nelson Rockefeller was given overall supervision of the domestic policy development process. That didn't work well because he clashed with Don Rumsfeld, and you don't clash with Don Rumsfeld, so Rockefeller didn't even get to be the candidate in 1976. But that was the first effort, really, in the modern presidency to bestow a lot of responsibility on a vice president. Ever since then, it's taken off through Mondale, the first Bush, even Dan Quayle, who was given supervision over regulatory review, which sounds boring but isn't. It's a way to uh, block federal regulations and favor your friends. Uh, certainly Al Gore, we all know, was saving the planet even as vice president. And, of course, now Dick Cheney breaking all records in that department. Initially, all of this worked pretty well. As John said this morning, all of this worked pretty well for the first few months because there was an existing agenda, a whole bunch of campaign promises. Some of it was institutionalized in the White House. John DiIulio's role was to shepherd the faith-based initiatives project, for example. 
It was not too hard to get through a Republican Congress. You had a White House that emphasized loyalty, discipline, and increasingly secrecy. The executive orders we were talking about earlier, certainly, the stress on uh, executive privilege. All this was foreshadowing what was to come. 9-11 happened. Allegedly, it changed everything. It didn't change everything, but it changed a lot of things. One of the things it changed was the internal dynamics of the White House. And without going into a lot of detail, if you want the detail, I think, uh, Michael Nelson's going to give you some of it in the, in the next session this afternoon, or you can read Barton Gelman's book, Angler, about Dick Cheney. What happened in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, the weeks after, were several things. One, as has been pointed out, decision-making with respect to the response in Afghanistan followed the model of multiple advocacy, with Condoleezza Rice as the honest broker who brings it all together. At the same time, there were a whole lot of other meetings going on in the White House that most people didn't know about. Paul Light, who among political scientists is probably right now the most quotable individual, famously described it as an organized ad hocracy with more dotted lines than a dress pattern. If you learn how to talk like that, you can be Paul Light, too. Uh, he, he actually thinks those things up in advance. Uh, what he was talking about was a White House in a degree of organizational disarray. All right? It wouldn't be unfair to say that they panicked. There are some circumstances so extreme that the only rational response is panic. 9-11 was one of those things. It provided openings for an operator, for an extremely skilled bureaucratic operator, such as Dick Cheney, who had already planted allies around the administration in what turned out to be key points, such as the Office, Office of Legal Counsel and the Department of Justice, where they were advising on things like the definition of terrorism and what you can do with uh, captured suspects. Uh, in the White House Counsel's Office, David Addington, Cheney's top lawyer, was considered a, had the rank of assistant to the president and was uh, certainly a good deal more influential than in these areas than Alberto Gonzalez and elsewhere. Cheney's influence ballooned. And it is in this period, this post-9-11 period, the Iraq war run-up to and early years of, where you get the idea that Dick Cheney ran America, or that he was a co-president, to say the least. Goes back to the CEO model in part, the things that were delegated to Cheney turned out to be the most important things, and Cheney was up to the task. During this period, other things really receded. Domestic policy took a backseat. The economic team kept changing and was in relative disarray. People weren't even replaced necessarily on things like the Council of Economic Advisors. The discipline and secrecy that had been the hallmarks of the early administration became almost dysfunctional. Got to the point where one could be severely critical of the commitment of the administration to openness and public scrutiny, efforts by Congress, this is a story you've heard, were rebuffed to the extent the administration could. 
the election of 2004 is the, is the final break point. At the beginning of, the, of, of, of 2005, Dick, uh, George Bush, Dick Cheney was beginning to be, I think, less of a dominant player then. Uh, Michael can disagree with me on that, but I think over time you get Scooter Libby, you get no WMD. Uh, Dick Cheney just doesn't look as formidable. George W. Bush steps center stage, and here we have now the campaigning as governing, the going public presidency. He says, I have a lot of political capital. It's a pretty narrow victory, but none of I have a lot of, compared to his last one he did. Uh, I'm going to use it to get Social Security reform. This is part of Karl Rove's overall ownership society strategy. It wasn't a policy designed to save Social Security fiscally. It was a policy designed to get people to buy stocks, basically, so that they would become committed to the capitalist system the way Roe felt FDR got us committed to government. And he went on the road and he tried his very best to sell it. And every time he gave a speech, public approval of the program went down about a point. Uh, it turns out, and there's a lot of research on this, that presidents going out on the road and selling policies have almost no success. It doesn't work. They do it, I suppose, because there isn't entire, it isn't entirely clear what else you do. But it doesn't work, and it didn't work. The rest of Bush's second term, we can summarize briefly, has been summarized has, has been characterized by a catastrophic decline in his public approval and not a great deal of accomplishment until the late economic crisis where Henry Paulson, as Treasury Secretary, has stepped forward back to the CEO model again. Henry Paulson is George Bush in effect for that policy area. He has the president's go-ahead to do what he wants and he keeps doing things every day. It's, uh, it's been fun to follow. What do we get from this? Well, we get from this that even the very best decision-making system installed by the very most knowledgeable people, which I think we did have at the outset of the Bush administration, can be defeated by events and can be defeated when it is not sufficiently backed up by the guy in the middle. The president really does matter. Andy Card, Condoleezza Rice, could have continued as effective traffic managers even in the face of the post-9-11 disarray, but only if George Bush had backed them. They could have said no to Dick Cheney, but there's only one person in the government who outranks Dick Cheney, and that's George Bush, and he was not backing them if they wanted to push back on Cheney, and they didn't. So the president still matters despite all the organization. What does all this mean for Obama? One of the questions that came up earlier was, when presidents get power, do they ever give it back? When, pres when the presidency expands, other than in very strange circumstances like post-Watergate where Congress reclaimed power, is Obama going to continue along the path that, paths that Bush, Bush did? Are we going to have the same legacy? I think no. No, in some obvious ways. There's not going to be a Dick Cheney in the Obama administration. Joe Biden hasn't uh, any of the traits that you would look for in a Dick Cheney, and that's deliberate. Biden will be 
back into the mainstream of vice presidents with a policy area assigned to him, in this case probably foreign relations, and a delimited influence within the administration. There will probably be more openness and probably less discipline than in the Bush administration. Why? Because these are Democrats. Remember Will Rogers' aphorism, I belong to no organized political party, I am a Democrat. Uh, transition machine is apparently already leaking, Hillary Clinton for Secretary of State. Uh, you can expect an administration that's a little bit more improvised. The public presidency, Obama's had such good luck in the campaign, will probably continue. It can't not continue in the media environment we're in. However, I don't think you will see in the Obama administration the claims of unilateral executive power that you saw in the, Cheney, in the Bush administration as inspired by Cheney and his staff. That doesn't mean they're giving it back. It doesn't mean they're renouncing it. I, I just think you won't see them using it. Does that mean the power goes away? It becomes arguable that they never had it. So I think you will see some pullback in that sense. It's not going to be a ratchet effect in which presidencies continue to expand their influence, in part because Obama won't need to. Congress is on his side at least for two years. So that's, that's as best I can do, the legacy of the Bush administration. It is not entirely a positive legacy, but at least at best it can be lesson learned. Well, many thanks to our two distinguished panelists. Now we have about 15 minutes for some Q&A, so go ahead. I'm interested in the presence of privatization how do you assess the performance of privatization, and I'm thinking in terms of military, in support of national security efforts? Does privatization now have an extended or executive privilege beyond constitutional accountability? Since I don't know anything about it, I'll take a shot at it. <laughs> uh, obviously, in the military area, Part of the Rumsfeld strategy of downsizing the military is to contract was to contract out more things, hence Halliburton, and, and that's been going on since at least the Clinton administration. An awful lot of uh, the action in the Balkans was performed by the same kinds of folks. Yes, it definitely does affect accountability when private security guards are guarding American visiting dignitaries or performing other quasi-military functions, their actions are not as easy to hold accountable as, as if they were actual military. And I think we've, we've experienced enough of that in Iraq particularly to, to have qualms about it. On the other hand, I don't see any real re reason to believe that we're going to upsize the military. There's no money. Uh, the existing arrangements are probably going to have to continue for lack of an alternative, at least for a period of time. I, I, I simply can't see any, any other way around it. We are learning from that, as we probably should have before. This is, because privatization was a big part of Al Gore's reinventing government program. It was 
to be carried across the, the entire government, the idea being to create competition and so on. Especially in the military, there just isn't very much competition. There are a whole lot of sole source contractors because the large private companies that support military activities have developed specialization so that if you want a certain thing done, there aren't very many people you can go to, sometimes only one, so you're not getting the benefit of competition, and that, again, is a problem. I would like to go back to your area of expertise for just a second, and there are a few of us out here who really do care. Two, and actually this speaks to what Mr. Flanagan had to say, too, and this may be a bit esoteric, but the fight between the Office of Homeland Security and President Bush wanting to keep it close to home and demanding the money from Congress and the concession, as I see it, to a Department of Homeland Security, I read from what you were saying sort of him taking credit for it. I don't know if you intended that to be his legacy. Would you comment? Well, <clears throat> he certainly signed it. So in that sense, he put his rubber stamp on the act um, and on the Department of Homeland Security. It seems what I was trying to recognize in my talk is that there has been this pattern from Truman through uh, President Bush of trying to institutionalize their way out of problems by creating government departments, and I um, I don't think there's any doubt that President Bush allowed that to happen with the Department of Homeland Security. Now at the same, or the, yeah, Homeland Security. Now at the same time, you do see equivalent institutions set up within the executive office to try to keep as much power as possible close to home for the president. Um, I, yeah, I, I would only add that obviously Bush in, initially resisted the idea of a department. He was aware and his advisors were aware that when you put together a brand new department made up of elements from all over the government, there's an enormous learning curve, an enormous period of time it takes to try to integrate those people into a single entity that can work together. And that in the, in the existing crisis, that might not have been the best idea. Bush tried initially to do it simply with a coordinating office in the White House under Tom Ridge. But Ridge had no budget to speak of. He had no real authority. He was simply not able to bring the agencies involved in Homeland Security. And remember, we're talking about the FBI and the CIA, people with major constituencies in Congress. He couldn't bring those people together, never mind defense intelligence and, and, and the rest. So... Ultimately, Bush sort of threw up his hands and acquiesced in what uh, particularly Joe Lieberman was recommending, which was a new department. And then it becomes that kind of solution. But I do think, yeah, in, in a way, he wanted very much not to do it, but ultimately couldn't figure out any other way to get something in place. And, of course, the Department of Homeland Security has had a checkered history. Uh, it, it contains FEMA, which got administratively downgraded within the department from what it had been before and has uh, underperformed ever since. Yes, thank you both for those presentations. Professor Walcott, could you please elaborate as you go through the phases and stages? Uh, I was curious about the impact specifically of some of the neocons uh, on the administration. Uh, please elaborate. Well, the neocon is a, is a broad, broad term. Uh, it's not even entirely clear what it means. It used to mean disaffected former Democrats. Uh, David Brooks now says basically what it means is Jews, uh, which he can say because he's Jewish. Uh, 
where, where you usually hear the term neocon is, is associated with the plan to destabilize and reconstruct the Middle East by invading Iraq and converting it to a democracy which would then infect the other democracies around the kind of our version of the the good domino theory uh, which would ultimately have the effect of actually the, the ultimate goal for many was the security of Israel because you can solve the Palestinian problem if you can change the governments in places like Iran and Syria so I, there was a lot of thinking about this and some writing and a lot of planning that was going on in the 1990s. So it wasn't something that happened in short-term response to the activities of September 11th. People who were a part of this movement, people like Paul Wolfowitz, for example, in the Defense Department, were importantly placed within the Bush administration. And when the opportunity came up to move toward these policy goals, they took it. There, there's, a, there's a theory of organizational decision-making, sometimes known as the garbage can theory of decision-making, I kind of like the term, which holds that the way organizations make decisions, there's a whole world of solutions out there. That is, things people would like to see happen, but they aren't being employed because there is at most times no problem to which to attach them. And what organizational decision makers do is when a problem arises, then you have this array of solutions, each with its advocates, its champions, and you find among those solutions something you can attach to the problem in a process that's fairly close to randomness. It seems to me that the neocons vision in the globe at least, their, their vision of the Middle East, was one of those things that fortuitously happened to be there at a time when you needed something that made the Middle East intelligible to you because we'd just been attacked by Arab terrorists. And all of a sudden it had a credibility and a plausibility. It was at the top of the agenda where it hadn't been before. Uh, this is not a conspiracy theory. I don't think conspiracies work because I don't think we're smart enough. Uh, this is a target of opportunity theory. Um, this is more directed to Mr. Flanagan, but feel free to come in because you kind of touched on it in the privatization issue. I was wondering about the military-industrial complex in this country and how much that has affected the expansion of government and Department of Defense because ever since World War II, it's definitely been very connected. And I was wondering what kind of influence that has had on the expansion of government and the expansion of how much we're spending on it. Sure. Well, and Eisenhower obviously recognized that a long time ago, and it's it's sort of continued. But, I, you know, there, there are other experts here who would be better capable of answering that question, specifically on the military-industrial complex. I'm um, very modest about my knowledge on the subject, but I will say that um, I think the fact that we spend two-thirds of our federal budget on national security, including the military apparatus, says something. That's public knowledge. The, the dollar figures I gave you all earlier were directly out of the OMB mid-year, mid midterm report. And so that's all public knowledge, and people seem to put up with it. But you're right. There is, there is something to that. And uh, I don't, you, may, you, you have more of the base of knowledge probably to talk about that. 
Well, I think that there's you know, there's always something to that when there's something as big as the military, and you know, however you define it, whether it's the uniform military or everybody who supports them, uh, as big a part of the budget, as big a part of the country's public policy as as military national security is. What Eisenhower was warning about is that it might get too powerful, uh, that it might consume too much of the economy, as the military has an insatiable appetite for materiel, that it might come to dominate our responses to the world. Arguably, in the aftermath of 9-11, our response to the world was perhaps too military. There's a there, Lou Fisher and others who know the law would be better able to, to talk to this, but it seems to me there's a problem with calling the war on terrorism a war. Even a bigger problem with calling it a war on terror, because terror is a human condition. If we really want to wage war on terror, we should we should shut down all the roller coasters. But <laughs> you're not going to get rid of terror. It's like a war on itching. But a war on terrorism, yeah, we, we, we could do that, but if you, if you call a war on a condition a war, and you take the term war seriously, okay, war on poverty, fine, war on ignorance, okay, war on terrorism means military action around the globe, at least potentially, that is a never-ending war. It logically can't end because the possibility of terrorism can never be completely ruled out. It's kind of like smallpox. Even if nobody has it, it won't go away. That puts us in a position where the military imperative has been elevated to a permanent position in the public policy realm that it doesn't usually enjoy because we have never been in a condition where we're always at war. Even the Cold War was really more of a metaphor than, than, than an actual war. So I worry about that more than I worry about the size of the Pentagon, although yeah, and in that sense, I think Donald Rumsfeld was doing the Lord's work when he started out. I think he was doing the right thing, trying to downsize the military and make it more agile and better able to deal with the problems of the 21st century rather than the Soviet Union. The way he went about it wasn't particularly diplomatic, and it certainly got interrupted by actual wars. But most likely, down the line, war is going to become more technological, less based on personnel, and uh, it may consume as, as large a part of the budget, but it won't consume as large a part of the society as it has.